This morning, I am continuing my series on parenting, uh, but it's not going to be so much out of Ephesians this morning as it is out of Deuteronomy 6. We're in our series on Ephesians 6, uh, the part where God says, children, honor your father and your mother. We looked at that last week, the specific honor command that's given to us there. We looked at before just general parenting principles. This morning, I want you to see some of the same stuff and more added to it from Deuteronomy 6. It, um, it amazes me what I've been seeing lately in the news, and really it's, it's sad that it seems we've, we've emerged into a culture where we, we used to talk about the sad suicide. But now we, we talk about suicide families, that a man kills his wife and his children and then turns and kills himself, or a wife does that, or even kids do that. And whole households, you know, it makes me wonder, what's going on in that house? How could it have gotten so bad that, that they're all to this, this place of nothing is, is worth living for? But it, and I hate starting with negative illustrations, but, but I want us to think about what happens if you ignore biblical parenting. What happens if you don't raise your kids the way God intended for us to raise them? What does that produce for you? It produces the fruit of ignoring biblical parenting. The fruit is God-haters and people haters. And that is not the legacy anybody in this room wants to leave. I don't want to live my life and say, you know, the best I could do is produce a God hater or a people hater. Which is why I said one of the first principles in parenting and biblical family is to learn to love the Lord your God and to love others as yourself. I mean, parenting in, in one sense is easy that you could just focus on those two things and succeed you've produced a god lover and a people lover and the second principle was this this command to honor and to obey well i want to add to that several more i want you to see these biblical building blocks on how to succeed at parenting in deuteronomy 6 so turn there with me Austin, I don't know if you can give me more light up here, but I just feel like I'm in the dark, and I like coming out of the dark into the light. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Deuteronomy 6. Look at these. Realize that Deuteronomy 5 is the Ten Commandments. God just gave the people that he's brought out of Egypt the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 6, he starts laying down how he wants them to use those commands, how he wants to teach, how he wants to build biblical families. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1 says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which, which is the commandment, all those ten which are in Deuteronomy 5, statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, so that your days may be prolonged. Stop right there and think about this a minute. Don't miss the three-generation vision God just gave you. 
He says, these commandments which I've been given, to which I'm supposed to teach to you, I teach it to you so that you, every one of you here that's a parent or an adult, so that you, you not only learn them, first generation, you teach them to your son, second generation, and to your grandson, third generation. Imagine if everyone in here had a three-generational ministry plan. I mean, some people come up to me after I talk on, on parenting, and they say, wow, I wish I'd have heard that 20 years ago. Listen, it's not over. That's only leg one, the first 20 years. Then you have a second 20 years. Then you have a third 20 years. You, you never quit teaching these principles. Your focus should be three generations. You teach them to your kids, and when your kids get old enough to have kids, you teach them to your kids again. And when your grandkids get old enough to listen to, you, you, you teach them to them again. I mean, it's just, God says, this is supposed to be going on and on and on. This is not something you have one shot at. Some of us, we're not ready to learn until we're 20. And we need parents to teach them again and again. So that's what he's saying here. Verse 3. Oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you. That's going to be repeated at the end of the chapter. The principles I'm giving you here is going to make your life better. It will be well with you. And that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our, our God, is, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and uh, with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. Talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Notice the emphasis there. Teach them. Talk of them. Bind them. Write them. I mean, it's like, think of every way possible you can implement the Ten Commandments I've given you into your family for three generations. This should be something that's constantly before you. So, as I look at this passage... And then, as it concludes, he, he, he goes into um, how some of that works out, but sums it up at beginning verse 20. Let me read. Verse 20. When your sons ask you in the time to come, saying, What do these testimonies and statutes and judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? It's like, you, okay, you've been teaching the Ten Commandments. You've been looking for ways to talk about them, to write them, to bind them. Uh, constantly, constantly, constantly. At some point, your, your kids say, What's up? And he says, Good, that's where you need to be. Verse 21, And then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord has showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. And he's brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he has sworn to our fathers, promised land. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. All right, a lot of words. Let me give you four. 
Four things that I think summarizes what I've just read for you. Four pillars for biblical parenting. Four pillars of a biblical family. Love, number one. Obedience and worship, number two. I've dealt with that in two different messages. Love, God, love others. It's the first pillar. Second, the honor command, to, to honor and obey, to obey and worship. Third command, righteousness. And then the fourth, stewardship. Now, I want you to think about these things, and I'll try to show you how they just they come out of the text here. But if you're focused, some people say, I have a hard time getting a grasp on all the commands sometimes. I have a hard time getting the whole counsel of God into my life or into my family. They will emerge through these four pillars if you'll just keep a focus on love, obedience and worship, righteousness, and stewardship. And ask yourself, am I, am I getting these principles across to my kids? Am I getting these principles into my family? Because this summarizes what God is wanting us as parents to teach. Uh, three generations. Let's look at the first one, love. Now, I know I've taught a whole message on it, but I want to go back and give it to you a little bit different way so that you, you really begin to grasp because this is crucial. What do I want to teach my kids? I want them to be a loving kid. I want them to love God. I want them to love others. Here's said another way, which I've written down for you. Love is, the essence of living is a loving relationship with the one true God. I want them to love God. I want them to see the essence of living, living well, is a loving relationship with the one true God. Do they get that? The essence of life is a loving relationship with the one true God. Back in chapter 6, verse 4, says, Here, Israel, listen. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. There's one true God. There's, there's not many God options. There's only one true option. And we need to be communicating that to our children. There's only one God for you to serve. One true Lord. And what should you do with Him? Verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The focus needs to be love. The essence of living is a loving relationship with the one true God. And he's bringing that out here. Um, your kids are going to ask you at some point, you know, what's life all about? Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, you know, for those of you who are in the private school here, you're in the, you, you understand the classical model, the grammar stage where you're learning facts. Wait, I just forgot them. Well, the logical stage, you start putting the facts together, yeah, and the rhetorical phase. So maybe the kids here have gotten to this rhetorical, uh, rhetoric stage where they're saying let's debate what what are you why have you been parenting me the way you've been parenting me and mom and dad are, are thrilled at that point say great question the reason i've been doing what i've been doing is because the essence of living is a loving relationship with the one true god i i certainly hope you don't leave this home and not catch that that it's a loving relationship. That I don't want you just to know me, to know one another. I want you to know the one true God 
that you know his commands, and that you have a loving relationship. Uh, God created us for loving relationships, and you're not going to have that unless you turn from sin and embrace Christ. Now, let me give it to you in a, in a, in a, a picture. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, 24 through 26. Second, here's a picture. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 24 through 26. So the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. Now, so as bondservants, we want to teach. What do we want to teach? Verse 25. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps, so we submit to God's mercy here, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, repentance is a gift from God, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So without Christ doing this, granting you repentance, you, you, only, you never really get truth. Uh, verse 26, And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Notice how we're born. We're born in the snare of the devil, held captive by him to do his will. Now, I like to think of it like a, a, a cage or a prison. And we, the non-Christian says, well, I've got freedom. Yeah, you've got freedom to move around about in the cage, but you don't understand you're in a cage. And everything you do, you do in response to your own heart. And your heart is sinful and evil. So what do you do? You lust after things. And, 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 and you want another toy. You want another video game. You want another life. You want a, another girl. You want another guy. You want another job. You, you're constantly lusting after things. And do you not understand? You're in bondage to your own lust. You never really have this moment where you say, yeah, this is what I lust after, but I'm going to do this because this is what God wants. You don't have the freedom to even think about truth and do what's true and right because you're in bondage to Satan and to sin. The only way out of that cage, the only way out of that bondage, do you see this? It's, it's a key, and the key is repentance. Repentance unlocks the door and enables you to walk out. You're no longer in bondage to your lust. Now, through turning from sin, turning to Christ, you have the freedom to please God, to love God, to respond to God. Prior to repentance and faith in Christ, you did not have that freedom. I've talked to non-Christians before who say, I'm free to, to love God. I say, okay, do it, prove it. See, they can't. They don't understand. They're in bondage. As if you had the freedom, do it. Prove it to me. They do not have the freedom to worship God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. You're in bondage to your own lust, to your own pleasures, and you don't have the freedom to enjoy the essence of of living. Is it really living to constantly be in bondage all your life? I want my kids to live well. And they are not living well if they are tied down, if they're always in bondage to their lust. They are only living well when they are free 
to roam the planet and love their creator as he designed for them. I want that freedom for them. They can only get that freedom by repenting, by turning from sin and embracing Christ. So I teach them the essence of living is a loving relationship with the one true God. You can't get that relationship. You can't get out of the prison house of sin and Satan except through repentance and faith. You must constantly be sharing that with your kids. By the way, um, parents all the time ask me, how do I know if my child has become a believer? Well, that's what you look for, repentance and faith. Have, been, have they been given the key to unlock the prison? Are they, are they free to worship God? Do you see them turning from sin? And do you see them embracing Christ in love? Because the essence of a saved life is a loving relationship with the one true God. That's the one thing as parents you should start with. That's the one thing you're teaching them. Back in Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You start there, defining God for your kids. And tell them, you must embrace Him because that's the essence of life. He's the source of life. He created your life. You will have no life without Him. So we seek to teach that and we t- seek to teach that freedom that from, from the bondage to sin. You remember Christ in his prayer in John 17. He says, John 17, 3. This is a short verse. You can memorize it. This is eternal life. When you see a statement like that, it's like, whoa, the lights come on. This is eternal life. What is it? What is the essence of eternal life? John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life. That they may... N- Know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's life. That's, that's eternal life. That's the essence of life. To know that there's one true God, to know him, to know that he has sent Christ, that we might go to him in love. That's the essence of living. We don't want to send our kids away until they get that one point that the essence of living is a loving relationship with this one true God. So when our children say, what is life? Or when they say, really? Is this all there is? You ever spent money on a family vacation and they say, really? Is this all there is? And your answer to that is, No, this is not all there is. There is so much more when you repent of sin and trust in Christ. You get freedom to come to this place and any other place, to take this job or any other job, to be in this marriage or any other marriage, and to be free to worship and to love and to obey and to be secure for all eternity. There is so much more. It only comes when you enter into a loving relationship with the one true God. And you get that relationship through faith and repentance. So focus on that love. Second, focus in parenting. Obedience and worship. Over and over throughout Deuteronomy 6, you you see this emphasis. I'm giving you these commandments, these statutes, these judgments. Why? So you'll do them. So you'll obey them. So that you'll keep them. They're important. They're not random. They're, they're crucial to a satisfied existence and that you'll do them out of this heart of love. 
out of worship. So there's nothing better for us than to obey and worship God. It's our highest priority for really satisfied existence. In verse 24 of Deuteronomy 6, it says, So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, it's for our good always, for our survival as it is today. I mean, you, sur- you survive, you thrive, you're satisfied through these commandments. Now, we've already, it's assumed you've already learned the commands. You've written the commands. You've bound the commands somehow on your doorpost, your heart. I mean, you know these things. It's, it, it's, it's assumed you've got a good grasp on the Ten Commandments so you can use them whether you're walking, talking, getting up, going down. And you've got such a grasp that you get, you need to observe them. And as you do them, it's going to be well with you. You're going to be satisfied and you're going to survive and you're going to thrive. And that's what we want for our kids. You know, life is a series of choices. We're making choices every, every morning. As soon as we get up, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? What are we going to eat? Where are we gonna, who are we going to see? Whatever. There's just choice after choice after choice after choice we have to make. In those choices that we make, are we choosing to obey God? Because the Ten Commandments becomes this, this grid. I choose to see this person because it's in obedience to God. I choose to eat this food or drink this drink. It's in obedience to God. I choose to see these people. It's in obedience to God. I choose to work this way. It's in obedience to God. We're making choices for our survival. And if we make those choices consistent in obedience to God's word, it will be well for us. Is what he said. You want satisfied life. You want a satisfied existence. Then you've got to make choices consistent with God's commands. Um, let me uh, illustrate how practical that is. There's just so many ways you can do this. How do your kids learn to make good choices. They learn by your example. They learn by watching you make choices. So you made a choice this morning. You chose to get up and come to church. Some of you did not feel like it. Some of you are a little bit sick. Some of you are tired. Some of you said, "Ah, okay, I will. You made a choice. And your kids observe that. And they'll observe whether you make the same choice next week and the next week and the next week and the next week or not. And that choice is consistent with the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So they see whether you're choosing to obey that command or not. And you begin to show them that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yes, you love, say, a football team. Let's just say Alabama. No, I mean Clemson. And, and, and they see your passion. For this football team, but what should they see? Even in the midst of a national championship, mom and dad still choose to go to church. They still choose to worship God. And when the games are over, which are seasonal, the worship is never over. It's not ever seasonal. It's in every season. So should they not begin to see there's a priority here? Mom and dad, yes, they love Clemson, but they love God so much more. They love God 52 weeks a year, over and over and over. They put God before us, and they worship and they praise Him. 
So there's nothing wrong with different passions, but do they see that God and Christ is your first passion, your primary passion, your foremost passion, that you seek first Christ in His kingdom? Or take, or take tithing, take giving, as you seek to teach your kids to be, be good with finances. You begin to show them your giving. And your kids see, wow, Dad, Mom, you give every week to the Lord? Well, yeah, this is a, we don't want to come before Him empty-handed. We want to worship Him. We want to give Him something and he's given us everything. He's given us life. He's given us new life in Christ. It's, 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 just, it's, it's just a tribute we bring. It's, it's just a, an offering that we, we offer up. What a privilege we get to do that. And if they watch you do that week after week after week after week, they again begin to see a priority. Why do you do this? See, see the, the passage is saying, they start asking questions. Why do you do this? I said, it's because we love the Lord. And because He's asked us to do certain things, we see it as a privilege to do it. Well, Dad, Mom, you're giving more to the Lord than you're giving to a car or giving to a house or you pay the car off and you pay the house off and then you keep giving. So you end up giving more to the Lord than anything. Bingo, you got it. Because the Lord is bigger than anything. He's more important than anything. He's first. And you can see it in real, tangible ways. Or dad, mom, I, I hear you arguing and struggling in your marriage. Are you going to break up? It's a real fear so many kids. For them to see Christ is in our home and in our marriage. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. God wants this marriage to be glued and stuck together. You can trust Christ here in this place and to begin to see them. We're going to work through things because it's obedience to God. Or when you need stuff to see that you're not stealing the Eighth Commandment or not lying the Ninth Commandment or not coveting the Tenth. They begin to say, why do you make the choices you make? The reason I choose to live the way I do is because it's in obedience to God. And that go, always goes well with me. It always goes well with me. God opens the windows of heaven and he blesses his people who obey and worship him. It's just over and over and over. And God says, right, and that's what I want you to teach your kids. I want you to teach them love. And I want you to teach them obedience and worship so that they get it because I want it to be well with them. I want you to multiply. I want you to have three plus generations of God blessing and life being well with them. All right, let's move to the third, righteousness. We kind of review now righteousness. Righteousness in Christ is more important than all other human successes combined. Do your kids know that? Righteousness in Christ is more important than all other human successes combined. Deuteronomy 6, verse 25. It will be righteousness for us if we're careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God just as He commanded us. So it's progression. You love, you worship, you obey. The obedience is your love 
pattern. I, I get to love God consistent with commands or things that He wants, He pleases, He's pleased with. If I do all that, it will be righteousness for us. It's like, wow, that's the prize. Righteousness is the most important human uh, uh, possession. That's where I want to get to. And that's where I want to get my kids. That they understand righteousness in Christ is more important than all other human successes combined. It doesn't say righteousness, it will be righteousness for us if we earn it. There's a different kind of righteousness here. This is not earned righteousness by us. This is righteousness granted to us. God says, I want you to be holy as I'm holy. I want you to be righteous as I'm righteous. I want to give that to you. I want to give that to you as you worship, as you obey. We only become righteous by God's mercy through Christ. Let me show it to you in other places so that you get it. The New Testament particularly explains the Old Testament. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. Very popular verse. We sometimes don't read the whole chapter and completely comprehend it here. Romans 8, 28 says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, you've got that, right? We know that all things work together for good for, for those who are loved by God, called, by his per, called for His purpose. We, we kind of memorize that. All things are going to work together for good for me. Well, keep reading. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become, what? Conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many nations. So He's working all things together for good. He's loving you. He predestines you. Why? To become conformed to the image of His Son. He wants you to be like Jesus. And Jesus is righteous. Don't qualify. God works all things together for good with your own qualifiers. That means I should have a house and a car and a million dollars in the bank. That's not what's in the text. God's working all things together for good so that He can conform you to the image of Christ who is righteous, who is holy, who is sinless. And if you get that, you'll understand the rest of the passage. For example, look at verse 35. It says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Now, if you took the interpretation the way some people take it, that God's going to work all things together for good, how many of you consider peril and sword and nakedness and famine and persecution and distress and tribulation? How many of you consider that one of your good things? Would you put that on your list? God, you're going to work all things together for good. Usually we say, God's going to work all things together for good so that I will never be in tribulation. I will never be in persecution. I will never have famine. I will never have nakedness. I will never have peril. I will never have the sword. That's not what he said. That's what you said. So the focus here is not on you having an easy life. The focus is on you having a righteous life, being conformed to the image of Christ. And even if you have peril, can you still be conformed to the image of Christ? Yes. Even if your clothes are stripped off of you, can you still be in the righteousness of Christ? Yes. 
Even if you don't have food on your table, can you still be in the righteousness of Christ? Yes. Even if you have the greatest of tribulation and persecution, can you still be conformed to the image of Christ? Yes. God's going to work all things together in such a way that no matter how bad life turns on you, no matter how sharp the sword, no matter how tough the tribulation, no matter how great the pain, you will still be conformed to the image of Christ. You will still possess the greatest possession known to man, the righteousness of Christ, and nothing will separate you from it. That's his point. That's huge. If that's the point, that's what we need to be teaching our kids. Do you understand You might one day lose your house. You might one day lose your car. You might lose your job. You might lose your wife or your husband. But do you understand if you possess the righteousness of Christ, that will never be separated from you. That means you can stand on judgment day clothed, not naked, not ashamed, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, having the one possession that makes God pleased. To welcome you in to heaven. That's cool. And so we don't want our kids to grow up and leave home and not get that. One of the uh, regular practices Patty and I had with our kids growing up is we did all kinds of things. You know, if you have family devotions, you pray and read the Bible, whatever. But once we put them in the bed and got to the light switch and hit the light switch... That's where we would stop and say, now trust the God-man Jesus, for he saves our lives. And we said that seven nights a week for 20 years, and we're still saying it. That sometimes we say goodbye, we're saying it to our grandkids. Trust the God-man Jesus, because he saves our lives. We wanted our kids to begin to get the picture. You need something that you will never get on your own. You need something we can never give you. It can only come through faith in Christ. And if you trust in Christ, it saves your life. You get a righteousness, not your own. Do your kids understand they need, do we all understand, we need a righteousness that is not our own. It's a righteousness given to us, not a righteousness we earn. Let me show it to you through some other passages. Um, I'll start with Matthew 5, 6. Uh, You know, do do kids get that this is more important than anything else? Uh, Saw a great basketball game yesterday, the New Covenant versus New Covenant. It's great. New Covenant won, by the way. I used to promise my kids when they were playing these games a milkshake for a double-double. Because I wanted them to, to grow and learn in, in the sport. So I, I promised them, they still remember this, so if you get double digits in points, if you get double rebounds, or you get double assists that lead to scores, you get two of those three, you get a double-double, you get a free milkshake on that. Okay? Give you something to push forward to. Do they... So they understood that was important. These are goals I need to achieve and reach. Do they understand reaching the righteousness of Christ 
is more important than a double-double. It's more important than a home run. It's more important than the touchdown. It's more important than landing into the best college or the best job or the best marriage. Do they understand the greatest possession is the righteousness of Christ? That's what I want you to begin to feel and see and communicate. Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's going to be well with you if you hunger and thirst in righteousness. Look over at Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Romans chapter 4. Stay up, folks. Come on. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Great illustration of there. The one who does not work. In other words, the, 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 there are Jews, there are Gentiles, there, there's people at times that are trying to work for righteousness. He says, blessed is the person who, who realizes no amount of rule keeping will make me righteous. The person who's not trusting his obedience to become righteous, but the one who's trusting the God-man Jesus for righteousness. Blessed is that person. It's credited to him as righteousness. Chapter 9 of Romans, verse 30. says, what shall we, we say then? Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. That's where we want to be. We get it through trusting the God-man Jesus. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. I love this passage, the description it gives us here of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. It says, but by His doing, Christ is doing this, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and Redemption. Christ, if we possess Christ, we possess His righteousness. And then one of my favorite verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. What a glorious exchange God promises here. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made Him who knew no sin. So He made Jesus Christ, who was sinless. He knew no sin. To be sin. Basically, He gave Him our sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God says, I'm going to take your sin, I'm going to give it to Jesus, and I'm going to take Jesus' righteousness, and I'm going to give it to you. Unbelievable. And when that happens, I possess the most important possession known to man, the righteousness of Christ. Jesus described as the pearl of great price. If, if, you, if you even dreamed you could obtain that by works, you'd sell everything you had to do it, get it. But you can't. You get it through faith in Christ, in Christ alone. One other passage, Galatians 2, verse 21. It says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died needlessly. If you could get this righteousness, if you could get this possession by just keeping rules, by keeping laws then Christ didn't really have to die. 
But the only way you can get this righteousness is Christ has to provide it. So he came to earth. He lived obedient to all God's commands for the 33 years he was in existence here. He actively obeyed everything. So he has, to his account, righteousness that he alone has earned without sin. And he says, I am willing to exchange it for your sin. I'll give you my righteousness. You give me your sin. You trust in me, and I will, it will be to you righteousness. Our kids need to know they need a righteousness, not their own. Trust the God-man Jesus. He saves our lives. So as in all the things you reward them for, for attainments, let them see the greatest attainment, which you can't even attain to. Is righteousness. You must surrender to. You must repent. You must believe. You must trust God to give it to you. Or you won't have it at all. The fourth thing. Stewardship. So focus on love. Focus on obedience and worship. Focus on righteousness. And focus on stewardship. We live as stewards. Not owners of God's possessions. Deuteronomy 6 verse 23. He says. He brought us out from there. In order to bring us in. Basically here. To give us. The promised land. The principle God's teaching there is everything you have, I've given you. Everything you have, I've given you. You were in bondage. I've opened the gate so that you could come out of sin and Satan's domain and so that you can now have freedom and everything you possess, you possess because it's my gift to you. So you live how? You live as stewards. You live under me. You live under my authority. And you you seek to obey these commands because that's what good stewards do. We seek to do life according to God's word. And he says, and it'll be well with you. Says it back in verse 3 again. Listen and be careful. It may so that it will be well with you to do these things. Uh, Do we tell our children? You know, they say, I want another toy. I want another uh, video game. I want, I want a car. I want a house. I want a girl. I want a guy. I want a job. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. What do you want to do with these things? you want to possess them? Or do you want to live with them and manage them in a manner that's pleasing to God? Do you want to act as an owner? Or do you want to act as a manager, as a steward? Much of life, those who are non-Christians, they're always lusting for ownership because they, they've not, they don't know the truth. They don't understand. God owns everything. You never take that ownership away from God. We don't own anything. It's what we have has been given to us as a possession. We are to steward. And we're to live our lives stewarding all that God has wonderfully provided for us. Do we get that message across I remember once um, somebody gave one of my kids $2.50 for some job they did. Probably one of you guys who did it. And so, wow, $2.50 that came out of the blue. Let's go to Walmart, you know, and let's get some cool Nerf gun or something. You know, let's, let's shoot the place up. Let's have a party. Well, so we go to Walmart. Patty and I do our shopping we're looking at all sorts of things. We get back in the car, and then it dawns 
on my son, he forgot to spend his $2.50. Ah, I forgot. Can we go back? Can we go back? And I thought, no, we're not going back. But, why, but, but that was a great time of teaching him. So why did you think you needed to spend it anyway? Well, because I had it. Yeah, but every spending decision needs to be a spiritual decision. Spiritual in the sense that God gave you that. No, God didn't give it. Yeah, he gave it to you through someone else. So you now possess it as a steward. Spending's not your only option. Do you understand? You could spend it. You could give it to the Lord. You could give it away. You could use it in some sort of ministry, mission. You could save it thinking there may be emergencies I need to be prepared for. There's lots of ways you need to think about this resource God has now blessed you with. And you begin to think about every resource as a steward. People think budgets, family budgets, are so that you, know, you don't go over and spend more than you make. No, no, no. Budgets are so that you can be good stewards. A steward won't spend more than he makes, but a steward's making lots of other decisions. There's a ministry part of your budget. There's a provisional part of your budget. There's a worship part of your budget. There's, there's so much in a good biblical budget that the reason you have it is to be a steward. Not to get rich, but to please God. And you begin to teach that, and you can teach it with $2 just as easy as you can teach it with $2 million. That you are here with the things you have because God has blessed. Are we teaching our kids to see every decision is a spiritual decision? Luke chapter 12, verse 42 is interesting. The disciples wonder as Jesus was teaching some of this. You know, Jesus, are you teaching this to other people or are you teaching us? And Jesus' response in Luke 12, verse 42, the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them the rations at the proper time? It's like, this is a big concept. Who, who really gets stewardship? Who really owns it? Who understands that everything we have has first been given to us by God and we are to be stewards. Well, do a survey. Ask your kids. Number one, what's the essence of life? What's the essence of living? How will they do? How will they respond? In their own words, will they, do, do they already possess the knowledge to say, well, the essence of living is a loving relationship with the one true God. And somehow will they communicate, my life it's wrapped up in worship, in love of the one true God. How will they answer the question, what's, what's your number one job in life? What's, what's the number one thing you are convinced you need to accomplish today? When, and all the choices you've got to make today, what, what's the most important choice? And they somehow answer, well, the number one choice that I need to make is that all the other choices are made consistent with God's commands. Because my life is about obedience and worship of Christ. Of all the things you could do in life, all the things you could attain, what's the one thing you want most? And they respond, if I could die 
in the righteousness of Christ, I'll have everything I need. The one thing I want most is Christ and his righteousness. Do they get that? And when they think about all the things they're responsible for, you know, why, why do you clean up your room? Why do you take care of your car? Why do you take care of your work environment? Well, it's because I want to please my master. I'm a steward. These things have been given to me. One of the number one principles we were constantly going over in our home was we take care of what God has given us. We're stewards. And we constantly, do your kids get that? I live life as a steward of God. Let's pray together. Father, it's so easy to be tempted to get off track and to produce God-haters and people-haters. Obviously, many are on that path. Lord, none of us want to be there. None of us. Forgive us when we've been detained and been sidetracked and been tempted to, to not build good foundations in our home and not build strong pillars in our children so that they are not torn by every wind of doctrine. They're not like a boat on the waves bouncing about, but rather they're like a tree firmly planted that yields its fruit in its season. Father, help us to focus on your word, the things that you want us to get across. We ask, Lord, your church would thrive with generation after generation after generation who understands to love you, to obey you, to steward, to live for you, and to cling to the righteousness of Christ as our only hope. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.